This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. On this episode of the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, I'm joined by Dakota Adams. Dakota is the son of Stuart Rhodes, the founder of Oath Keepers, who was recently convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in the events of the January 6, 2021 insurrection. He and I discuss what it's been like for him to move on from his chaotic upbringing, as well as his current campaign for the Montana State Legislature, and much more. Stick around. Dakota, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me on. So you grew up in academic centers on the East Coast. What was the hardest thing to adjust to when your family moved to Montana? So... I have a lot of childhood memories of playing Lord of the Rings action figures with little kids in grad housing at Yale. Hmm. And aside from that, we were basically in a very particular kind of increasingly right wing, increasingly isolated cultural sphere wherever we went. Hmm. And we, I believe now because Stuart was burning so many bridges that we effectively had to skip town. We were moving every two years, usually across state lines more often than not to and from Las Vegas. Okay. So basically there was a 14 month timer before Stuart would burn through his ability to survive in his cultural niche anywhere that we moved and then as soon as he couldn't keep it up anymore, we would bounce again. And that went on until we moved to Montana for the second time and eventually ended up in Trigo, which is the place that we stayed the longest where Stuart tried to establish a compound. So from that perspective, moving to Montana, because the first move to Montana had been to an isolated property in Big Arm while Stuart was working at a law firm in Polson that didn't feel terribly different from living anywhere else. And by the time we moved to Montana the second time in 2011, we were pretty firmly enmeshed in the Oath Keepers culture sphere. Right. And in that ecosystem, kind of a weird little parallel society of people with all the same conspiracy beliefs stretching across the country. And all of our interaction with people outside of the household and outside of militia world was through martial arts classes. Oh, okay. And that didn't change at all between suburban Las Vegas and suburban Kalispell. We even lived in the worst part of Kalispell, like in Evergreen between the track housing and the trailer park. So the, like the scuzziness of the neighborhood didn't even change. It was such a smooth transition that the only difference was trees in winter. (laughs) Yeah. So basically you were sort of in that milieu and you were just kind of moving between states and between towns, but 
because of the culture around you, nothing seemed to change very much is what you're saying. Yeah, we were so isolated and the people we interacted with were so select that one place was very much like another. My entire childhood, I have a very poor grasp of time. I have to reverse engineer what year childhood memories are associated with by figuring out what house we were living in and narrowing it down from there and then cross-checking with family photos to figure out what the year was. Year, month, and day didn't matter. And I don't think I knew what my own birthday was until my teens because time and schedule and routine did not exist. So you just never got to the point where there was any kind of stable routine. There was no stability whatsoever in anything except sporadic full-time martial arts classes, like full-time job hours, martial arts classes. What kind of martial arts did you do? Uh, MMA, boxing, jiu-jitsu. Oh, snap. That's awesome. I do jiu-jitsu. I'm a jiu-jitsu black belt, actually. Oh, yeah. I never got past, I never got my blue belt once we switched to adult belts. We went to some of the gyms that were starting to slide in the McDojo direction. So it had, Uh, they had 99 million different sophisticated sports car colored belts for kids and teens before you started over with the real system as a grown up. Yeah. (laughs) I took gold at a couple of the big tournaments in Las Vegas and brought the, uh, the first place Mullen's nice. sword back from Naga a couple of times. Oh, you got a Naga sword. Dang. My sister has one of the gold snakeskin overall ter- tournament champion in youth nice. Naga swords. I never got I never got one of those. But she was a monster nice. and took overall champion a couple of times. I think she's got two of the golden snakeskin swords that are even more Mullen's than mine. It's so funny that like, because they keep handing out those belts and swords, everybody loves that tournament. Everybody just totally loves going because so, man, so fun. You get a sword, you get a belt. You ever think about getting back into it? Are you training again? No, haven't for a long time. And I would like to, but it's on low enough on the priority list that I don't know when I would get back to it. Right, right. Cool. That's, that's awesome that you did that because I mean, I can totally see what you're saying about this being a source of stability, because if you're one of those people that enjoys jujitsu enjoys, you know, training MMA, it can be that thing, that thing that just absolutely makes you feel like it's worth getting up another day to do it. So yeah, that's awesome that you did that. All my childhood memories that are positive are pretty much all wrapped up with my maternal grandparents jujitsu or my very brief stint with the boy scouts as a teen in montana that's literally it well i hope you find the time and you know a decent gym to go back to they're popping up a lot more these days there's stuff all over the place and if you know you run it across something you ever need some help like vetting it like i've been doing this since 2005 so no i appreciate that my issue is where i live the nearest reputable gym is a solid hour away so that's it that's a two hour round trip commute yeah down the highway and in the winter that's in winter that's dicey it's hard enough to go and see a concert in the neighboring in the neighboring cities with concert venues Right. right regularly attending that's part of what made the childhood martial arts training so sporadic 
was we were always an hour out from the gym. And when we lived in deepest, darkest Trigo in the would-be compound, that was close to a two-hour commute. So a four-hour round trip, five days a week to make sure that everybody was at maximum combat fitness <laughs> in a way that Stuart didn't have to personally do anything to <laughs> oversee. It was a lot. Yeah, I'll bet it was. So... You mentioned that Stuart used to work for Congressman Ron Paul and that you spent a lot of time around people who were really into Ron Paul, the, the Ron Paul people. Looking back on that, does it seem strange to you that a lot of those people ended up going really, really hard for Trump? Because on paper, they don't have a lot in common. And that's not so much a commonality in the candidate, aside from overlap with like the common right-wing conspiracy theory mythology in the United States, like the people who believe in the new world order right. and that out of all of the, out of all of the both sides that are the same, the Democrats are definitely worse. That kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. The main thing is a perception of being outside the power structure and an outsider to whatever you believe the nefarious force to be which is why so many Ron Paul people report a general liking for Bernie Sanders and also why Bernie Sanders polls weirdly high with Trump voters. It's out of people who are apolitical out of apathy. Right. And culturally, but culturally enmeshed in right-wing conspiracy theory narratives that are showing them all of the wrong culprits for problems in society, then outsiders to establish power structures and to party networks are extremely appealing and feel trustworthy in an environment where no politician is considered trustworthy. Right. And that is the main thing that matters. Yeah. Cause they feel like outsiders to a big extent. And when you see like a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump or a Ron Paul, somebody who the system very obviously doesn't like anyone who capital T they seems to be trying to stop for any reason automatically becomes more trustworthy, which is really, really frustrating when I saw like regular ass neoliberal middle-class Reddit posters getting wrapped up with the supervillain who just got, who just got elected in South America uh, just because, oh, the, the mass media seems to really hate him. Well, it's no, it's because he's an idiot. Yeah. Sometimes like, <laughs> like a broken clock, you know, it's not everybody that CNN calls stupid is a secret genius that they're trying to hide from you. Sometimes the guy who's dressed like Loki telling you <laughs> that he's going to eliminate the, the public works department is actually bad. Yeah, that guy just, and... ANCAP is a meme, dude. It's not a way to run a country, and he's going to try from the sounds of things. There has never been any meme that is more true than the failed every time it's been tried thing yeah. when applied to anarcho-capitalism. It's Compared just... to all attempts to institute full communism, like the Soviet Union lasted for a while. No attempt at anarcho-capitalism <laughs> has lasted as long as a single premier of the Soviet Union, much less the entire body. Right, right. And don't tell me it's because the commies are meaner, because 
the ANCAPs are every bit as mean and would be every bit as brutal on their opposition. It's not that. They just can't run things as well. <laughs> Bro, if once we once we write the NAP into the blockchain, <laughs> trust me. Two more weeks. Two more weeks. I need you to invest. I need you to invest in my sneaker company. And I'm gonna give you proof of concept <laughs> for a mystery widget that's going to solve all of our social ills. But NFTs, seriously. <laughs> it's just yeah. wow. Okay. Your uh, your medical records should be embedded within a publicly traded picture of a yacht <laughs> or an ape. Wow. We're we we really are in an interesting place as a society right now. We sure are. Well, that wraps right back around to the same things that everything wraps back around to, which is the fallout of stuff like GamerGate fueling the strategies that went into Cambridge Analytica because NFTs and blockchain cryptocurrency seem really, really weirdly well-suited mm-hmm. to information vacuuming by apparatus like Cambridge Analytica and Palantir Technologies to be able to model absolutely everybody's behavior and institute an anarcho-capitalist minority report. And it's weird that all of these people somehow think they're being very anonymous with it. (laughs) It's like they just haven't thought it through. The idea that, like, no, actually, you're probably more surveilled than you ever have been. Well, if you just tell people that they're on the inside track, Mm. then they'll be willing to forgive a lot. Of course. So... Can you explain some, since you were there from the very beginning, about how Oath Keepers got formed and what the original goals of the organization were? So Oath Keepers is what happens when you have a natural-born con artist at the exact perfect moment in history to harness the largest amount of human effort, where Stuart Rhodes, coming from a family history of real estate fraud and MLM schemes on his mother's side that he was in a lifelong project of developing into some kind of political legal thing using his mixed credentials of Yale and army paratrooper to their fullest advantage. And then I honestly believe deliberately having a white picket fence family as a smokescreen, because I know that having a bunch of kids who were homeschooled and living the and living the uh, the good proper american life outside the system prolonged him getting fired from jobs where he was simply not doing any work as a lawyer several right. times and kept the grift going for a little bit where he was basically coasting through extracting as much money from a job and a social network as possible before having to skip town and we were part of that system right i think that's why i exist (laughs) but there is also a pathological need to be some kind of important figure in american history that i think might have been lifelong my mom has the write-up somewhere she has a several page document that Stuart hand wrote at i believe the age of 15 in very dramatic language, solemnly swearing on the honor of his mother's bloodline and a bunch of other stuff to never join the KKK or eat candy ever again. 
and to learn all the languages. Oh, it's wow. incredibly strange. And it's also exactly how he talks now when he's giving a speech or writing something very dramatic. It's the same. Wow. He's been exactly the same all this time when he switches into that particular mode. And he honestly, I think, truly believes that he's destined to be some kind of remembered historical figure in American history at the turning of the tide at the moment when the coin was teetering on its edge and could flip either way there in the mix is Stuart Rose, if not the next George Washington, then at least a Paul Revere. Wow. And because of that, because his personal mythology, like things that don't even make sense, like ranting to me that alone in a car coming home from an airport ranting to me as a child that he is the most lethal threat to white supremacy worldwide. <laughs> and the Democrats are fools for calling him an associate of racist because he is the most lethal enemy of the KKK. The audience was teenage me for <laughs> that one. So that's just his personal mythology. Right. And so the key to understanding all of it, and this goes on down to January 6th, is that Stuart Rhodes, in all aspects, is basically a very well-adapted grifter who absorbs in his particular niche enough energy to survive and live a comfortable lifestyle wherever he is until he burns through his social circle and moves on. And the most important thing is his own self-preservation, except for when the Messiah programming overrides that. And within the framework of having to be an American savior, he is as much of a self-serving low-level grifter as he can be. But the Messiah thing always takes precedence. In the Stuart Rhodes order of operation, American savior comes before self-preservation, right. but self-preservation is real high up there. And that is the key to explaining a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense to people when they're looking at his actions overall. But I've gone way off the point from the beginning of Oath Keepers itself, which is this personality, this very particular personality with the toolkit that Stuart had assembled of being able to be a person who could harness outsider political energy and building credentials, especially with conservatives, right. but presenting himself as an anti-authoritarian that would have broader appeal, he was able to grab onto and redirect a lot of now aimless energy that had been built up and had nowhere to go when the Ron Paul campaign failed. Because there, there were a lot of right-wing dissidents and conspiracy theory independents and even Occupy Democrats right. who saw Ron Paul as like the last ditch effort to get somebody who was not part of the same in group into power and try to change things and avert an irreversible slide. And definitely the more right wing you were and the more religious, the more severe that became Sure, where Occupy Democrats just wanted some kind of space created in the system so that it wasn't just the same smooth operation of the machine relying right. on momentum and lesser of two evils to run perpetually while this while the country falls apart and a general anger at established party politics and then you have a bunch of people who thought that ron paul may actually have been 
an anointed Messiah chosen by God to save the Republic. That kind of thinking was already in the air. And so there is this enormous amount of energy outside of the standard political parties, heavily overlapping with the militia movements, with an increasingly militant and conspiratorial bent, but not overwhelmingly, that was now idle and directionless, like an electric shock with nowhere to ground. And Stewart was able to seize on that with Oath Keepers and with excellent branding was able to turn a blogspot page operated from our house into a real organization shockingly quickly, mostly because my mom did all of it. (laughs) Every single time my mom stopped personally doing a job, like fulfilling orders for t-shirts, it took a team of three people to fail to replace her. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that you bring that up about branding because branding is one of the things that he seems to have done very, very well. He put together this, this idea of a group that, you know, was significantly probably larger on paper than it ever got in real life. And it sounded cool. He had an aesthetic going. Yeah, there was a feel to it. There was energy there. And in the hands of a different person, that branding could have turned Oath Keepers into a more militant successor to that was completely swallowing the the NRA and the John Burke Society and devouring them and relegating them to complete unimportance, or at least being a massive power player in right-wing politics with pretenses of being nonpartisan, moderate, or independent. Right. In the hands of Stuart Rhodes, it was only ever going to turn into a roving private army and compounds. That was the inevitable trajectory from moment one. I don't know if it was ever consciously planned. My mom thinks it was, that it was always going to end up being the means to build the private army of General Rhodes for the coming apocalypse. But regardless of whether that was intentional, I think that end result was set in stone from the minute the blog spot went live. Wow. Yeah. Seeing it from the beginning like that and realizing that like, if this guy had slightly more together, he probably could have done some, something so much more damaging as a result. Yeah. That's we chilling. were saved as a country, an enormous amount of damage just by Stewart's incompetence and the amount of times that he burned that he burned human capital through the friction of having to deal with his personality. Right. It collapsed and fractured away state chapter organizations because he sucked so much to deal with that nobody could stand the talk to national because national was Stuart Rhodes. Right. He burned through the Oath Keepers scene around here so thoroughly that after five years of living in Trigo, he had made himself a complete pariah in this county. <laughs> so there was absolutely, like, people ask if there like any concern that if Stuart has like loyalists around here that would harass us. No, Stuart had nobody that wouldn't spit on him in this corner of Montana by the time of January 6th. There was nowhere around here for him to go because he had poisoned everything with exposure to his own personality. 
And that's probably 180 degrees from what most people think when they think of like, oh, this guy was this revolutionary leader. He's probably got a whole lot of troops still kind of hanging around. You find yourself like hearing you say it. It's like, eh, maybe that's not quite the case. Maybe, maybe this guy kind of got to his peak as it were. I think he did peak and he was on a severe downhill slide by the time of January 6th, which contributed, I think, to his decision-making. But there are still people who want the civil war right, and want the collapse to come on terms favorable to them because they think it's inevitable or it'll give their life meaning. And even though that sheds a lot of the most competent and dangerous people that would be in the pool normally, there's still enough out there that if Stuart let out of prison today, he could start collecting and showing up to events with a hastily assembled local idiots platoon. Right. Right. Headlining at county fairs with Eamon Bundy. Oh, yes. And Matt Shea. And Matt Shea. Thank you for reminding me of my fatwa against Matt Shea. As soon as I'm as soon as I'm free from Montana politics, he's on the list. <laughs> You know, Matt Shea is one of those guys, like, there's a story, and I saw this written up in the Spokesman Review, Spokane paper, about a woman who was in a diner. Actually, no, it was a Mexican restaurant in the Valley. She heard a conversation behind her that was so scary. These guys were talking about weapons and, and tactics and maneuver and all of this other stuff, and she didn't know what she was hearing. She ended up calling the police. They left, and it turned out it was Matt Shea and Stuart Rhodes. Yeah, I've been there for those conversations, not with Matt Shea specifically. I interacted. I don't know if I ever even spoke personally to Matt Shea, even though there were a couple of times where he was at events that my family went to right. at weirdo Christian compounds like Marble Community. Oh, but, yeah, Marble Community. Yeah, God and Country Festival uh, 2000, 2012 or 13. It's on YouTube. You mean the place that used to be a Christian identity compound up until what year was it? They finally stopped saying overtly that they were into that. I, I don't think I'd ever put a used to be on that. <laughs> That's uh, I've only heard about marble. It's weird. I need to, I think I actually did on my Substack. I, I did. I, I wrote about my experience of marble community, which is mostly knowingly ignoring that we were in a cult compound because <laughs> we had in this particular instance, we had the freedom to go and wander around this festival and turn in a ridiculous number of vendor coupons for burgers and cheesecake. And I played volleyball and just completely tuned out all of the everything else. Survival mechanism, because that's a weird place up there and that's a weird crowd. We knew it was weird. We knew we were in the twilight zone. This was fucking eerie Indiana shit. Yeah. And they were trying to court Stuart to move there to oh boy. have to consolidate Oathkeeper's HQ into that the way that it eventually would attempt, would attempt to in northwestern Montana. And we were just like, eh, because like most of the time they have to sit through all the talks about how you need to have snipers in your churches to kill SWAT teams <laughs> and all the stuff that raised eyebrows when the recording started to get out. Yeah. And by that point that it all becomes so boring that (laughs) being able to go wander outside 
and do something else while all that was going on was so refreshing. Wow. That was my marble community experience was I was so burned out on the all of it that I didn't care that we were in a weird cult compound and just ate as ate all the free cheesecake. People don't realize just what exactly these people are on up there in terms of what they are looking at the world. It really pays to read up on some of their stuff and listen to some of the recordings. Yeah. Going back and reading about Marvel community and the level of the level of violence that nobody ever told me about, like reading the reporting yeah. on the founding of Marvel community and its, and its roots. That was a little perturbing, but that's always like that. Like who in Oath Keepers did not headline events with small-time fascist dictator Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Right. Turning a complete blind eye to the fact that he was a very small Pinochet in the mm-hmm. middle of the desert. Like It's always like that. Who would have been a very large Pinochet if they'd ever let him. Oh, he absolutely would have started operating his own death camp if he'd been allowed to. This is one, mm-hmm. this is one of the people that would independently reinvent the Nazi party if left in a vacuum without another power to stop him. Oh, yeah. I mean, getting rid of that guy was one of the best things Arizona ever did. Seriously. That was... Huh. In retrospect, if there had to be like... There have to be some serious cultural blinders that were on that so much of the right-wing militia movement as extremely fraught with problems as it is were able to normalize and ignore sheriff joe arpaio yeah because this whole thing is about liberty this whole thing is about individual liberty and you know tyrannical government and arpaio is kind of the definition of tyrannical government to a large extent arpaio is effectively an occurrence of a taliban warlord inside the united states under different branding and i you have a little bit of a very poorly articulated personal theory about that, which is a lot of the contradiction in American militias is that a lot more of them than they would like to admit, at least in leadership and in their overall culture, right, are kind of ur-fascist. And because one of the main tenets of proto-fascism is the culture tradition we got to we got to harken back to yesterday to yesteryear and hold true to the ideals of our ancestors right pride in the ancestral strength despite the attempts by the internationalists and the foreign horde to dilute our identity which really easily slow walks somebody into racism but the contradiction shows up because the hewing to the ancestors in the case of the United States, you have to make a lot of noise about the constitution, the bill of rights and classical liberal and enlightenment values. Right. While having an overwhelming tendency for letting emotional reasoning pull you into very mainstream generic authoritarianism. So you end up looking like a huge hypocrite when it's actually the other way around. It's not that these people who believe in freedom and individual liberty and standing up against tyranny so strongly are somehow tolerating a ton of authoritarianism. It's that you have a bunch of people who have authoritarian personalities right? who by fully developing and embracing the cult of the ancestor have to mouthpiece about 
values of freedom because that was the notable thing that the ancestors did. It becomes a rote recital and not a from the chest belief. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting because like I was kind of thinking about how the militia movement does that. Growing up, you know, in eastern Washington in the 1990s at kind of the beginning of some of that stuff and paying attention, they were trying very hard it seemed at the time to push this idea of this is all about freedom. This is all about government overreach. This is all about, you know, look what they did to Randy Weaver. Look what they did to Waco. This is why we need to get together because this overarching tyrannical government. But you look at it from the perspective of where it ended up. And it's clear that like some of these people didn't really have a problem with any of those kind of tactics. They simply just wanted to be the ones doing them to their enemies. Well, there's a very particular view of the world, and this is in another little Substack post I read trying to untangle all of the expectations that I was raised with as the eldest son and scion of Stuart Rhodes. And there is a background belief in a lot of the right wing that the natural shape of society is a pyramid, and that's an immutable fact that there's always going to be an elite and somebody on the bottom who is stepped on, even if it's not fully articulated. And within that, there can be people who think that the current ruling class are corrupt or need to be displaced, but they genuinely don't believe that another shape aside from the pyramid is possible. And if you say that you're trying to not have a pyramid, they think you're lying and that must be a plot to put somebody else on top and move them down a level. Right. It's definitely a sort of, this is the belief system. This is the way that you're going to look at these things. And we are the ones that naturally should end up on top because us. Yeah, we should be on top because we are, whoever the us is, we're better, but we're not. So that means there must be some kind of nefarious force at play artificially holding us back from being at the top of the food chain and elevating those less worthy above us, which can be easily sidestepped into linking a lot of people's personal grievances to like women in the workplace Mm -hmm. and using that to it's all a lot of it, especially all the people lionizing Randy Weaver. It is something that is very, very much coming from fundamentalist Christianity, right? Where if you want to believe that Jesus is coming soon, one of the necessary preconditions in the end times is that everyone is going to hate and persecute the true Christians and all those who are of the world will turn against the real believers. Yep. So you are always looking for that to be happening. If you want to hope for Christ to return and save us from the world being as bad as it is, because if the world is just the way that it is and Jesus isn't coming next year, and this is not this the peak of the terrible before the apocalypse begins and the uh, the zenith of corruption and vice, right. then that's a serious fucking problem. But that is what it is. And so you have people who are perpetually on the lookout for being the most persecuted minority in history because it's a sign that the turn is just around the corner. Right. And that percolates through culturally to people who don't believe in a literal second coming and a literal resurrection or antichrist who 
still absorb all the structures, which is where you get like, in my opinion, QAnon as a belief system is a secularization of end times Christianity. It's every, all of the story beats of revelations are just made into smaller scale, more believable modern parables that have the supernatural and the holy mostly stripped out. Right. So that you can actually literally believe that it's coming next year, even if you don't believe in the returning Christ. And that same thing I think is at work in in the militias where there is a need in order to create a giant in group that has to stick together at all costs. It has to win at all costs. The world, the entire world is against you and in war, anything is permissible. Right. In order to forge that large group identity out of a group of fractious weirdos in the woods, you have to create the enemy that is both too weak and too strong, who was constantly attacking you. So you have to constantly be the victim who was on defensive and yet so strong that if you finally decided to do something about it, you would immediately win. And that's what a lot of that is serving is building that. And transitioning a little bit to January 6th, how many of those people that got involved in that thought that they were probably going to win? I think a ton of the people who went into that, into the Capitol thought it was going to be, they were going to be the new Iranian revolutionary guard. Like the people at the forefront of the riot in the mostly peaceful revolution that installed the insane theocracy. Yeah, the overthrew the Shah. And kicked the special interests out. They thought that this was going to be their storm the embassy, you know, hold the students moment. And, and I'm sure they they wouldn't have made that comparison personally. There's there's a lot more 1776 thrown around, but that is the most direct comparison, yes. And in there you have where, because Stuart and Oath Keepers are by this point at a severe downward decline in no small part because of my parents' divorce, where without my mom running the show effectively behind the scenes and managing Stuart, completely unable to cope and the decay begins to accelerate. Also the overwhelming fear that is a serious, serious driving force for Stuart Rhodes, I believe leading up to January 6th, that the FBI are going to come get his ass for Bundy ranch related charges. If there is no longer a conservative president protecting him from the DOJ. I think that was a huge motivating factor that he believed that no matter what, if Trump did not stay in power, his ass was going to prison. That makes it into a win or die situation. And that is where he, in my speculative opinion, put himself in the position to be used as an expendable and deniable asset by people like Roger Stone or Flynn or whatever the fuck the name of the veterans for Trump guy is. to try to carry out a specific mission inside the Capitol, namely, I think, abducting Nancy Pelosi and seizing the ballots and then being on hand to be called up as the militia and bring in the guns once enough chaos was created and the order was given right, to uh, break up the riot and, and secure the Capitol. And once that failed, they were burned. And the smoking gun for me, like, it's kind of shocking how long it took for somebody to tell me about the Brooks Brothers riot the last time that Roger Stone did this. Oh, yes. And 
like to me the direct a to b line is extremely obvious and the only thing that should be confusing is why Stewart would have put himself in that position to be used as an expendable limb and then burned when he failed to perform and driving around the country stockpiling night vision goggles in a supporter's household and trying to plan the American Viet Cong in the ashes of failure, sleeping at his lawyer's house in Texas. And it's because of that. It's because he thought that no matter what, he was going down unless January 6th went off. And so he had to go all in. But he'd been such a loser that he no longer had a standing army of true believers that included serious skill sets in the thousand strong to call upon. He had whoever he could get. Right. And some of those people were not the best and the brightest anymore. This was not the top shelf cut. No. Those people all saw what was coming a long time ago and probably bailed out. There has been a lot of bailing out. Right. All of the people that you would least want to be dealing with if you were the government fighting an insurgency by an organization like Oath Keepers, Stewart did an amazing job of driving all of the people that you would least want in Oath Keepers leadership out of Oath Keepers <laughs> and re-atomizing them. The, 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 probably the greatest damage that Oath Keepers did in terms of national security, if you're looking at it from that perspective, was galvanizing and creating all of the local groups that splintered off and are today still independently doing their own thing. Right. But Oath Keepers as a central organization is dead. That's kind of what I figured. And for the record, I think you're probably right about that speculation about what the plan probably was. There's just too many signs pointing to the people involved. Roger Stone's very pointed I was at the Willard. I didn't leave. I was nowhere near this thing. You know, having his alibi all ready to go. Texting Stuart nonstop on signal before and after when he was landing in Florida, convinced he was going to be arrested at any moment. Mm -hmm. Extremely non-incriminating behavior. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing you do when you're totally innocent and you're not planning anything like that. He was probably trying to talk Stuart down and tell him to turn himself in. Sure, sure. Because Roger Stone is a patriot and a great American. Absolutely. Great American. He did nothing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, we got the title drop, boys. Pack it in. We're taking it home. (laughs) So you said that the Oath Keepers are basically done as a national group. There are still local chapters that are probably out doing stuff. But a lot of people worry about a repeat of what happened on January 6th. And I don't know, I'd like to get your take on how likely you think that is in the event, say, January 6th, 2025. Say, for instance, you know, Donald Trump doesn't win. I think January 6th, the way that it went was only possible because the defense of the Capitol was completely sabotaged to create the conditions for storming the Capitol. Like the ground was prepared for a successful storming of the Capitol by an incited mob at every level. Something else bad could happen, definitely. I don't think an exact repeat is on the ta- is on the table because... You would need to have, again, coup plotters in command of the defense against themselves at every level and able to obstruct responses and strip defenses and sabotage preparedness 
at every level to create the conditions for a January 6th. And you saw the difference between what a government that was prepared to defend itself looked like and what we got on January 6th, 2021. I mean, you go down to Brazil and you look at what happened on January 8th of last year when the Bolsonaro supporters tried to storm the Brazilian capital and the Brazilian police response was much faster. They were not there to fuck around. Yeah. You don't even have to look abroad. You just have to look at what happened when there were protests in DC during Black Lives Matter. Mm. Unless they threw away all the equipment they had and fired everybody who was on video from all the footage of all those protests, there is no way to excuse the difference. No. Because there was not a storm of social media and online messaging all but openly plotting to storm the Capitol and take it by force in the lead up to Black Lives Matter protests in D.C. or the Women's March, and yet get the full panoply of militarized policing in D.C. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they needed to make it equivalent. They needed to make it look equivalent. So in the event of a January 6th type of situation, you would have been justified in somehow calling you know, the Insurrection Act into play and what you said about basically calling up the militia since the federal troops can't do it. I don't know if I would put that level of intricate forethought behind it, just that some people who protest against power are acceptable targets and some people are not. In the case of January 6th, uh, right-wing protesters are not acceptable targets for police violence and they wanted the riot to succeed and do the most damage possible. So they yanked everybody. All you have to do to get a disproportionately violent police response to a racial justice protest is step out of the way and let the momentum of the system do its work. It's going to be the default anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really hard to argue otherwise after watching 2020 and seeing what the response was like in places like Seattle and places like Portland and places all over the country. Yeah, that was the, uh, if we're talking about when my belief system seriously started to shift, and I wrote a lot about the initial cracks in my belief system that opened because I was following our betrayal of the Kurds in Syria in 2017, and that got me looking more critically at the Trump cabinet from a standpoint where previously I kind of had a weird within the right-wing teenage rebellion phase where I desperately wanted to stop believing in the apocalypse narrative and got burned out on the end of the world every six months. So I really, really wanted to believe in somebody fixing things. Right. Or at least the focus being somewhere away and not thinking that I or anyone around me was going to be the target of the regime if anything happened. And that is when I started to buy into Trump. And then when the headlines were covering some the story that had been following very, very, very closely and was deeply emotionally invested in. And there was nothing on display but staggering incompetence and probably malice right. from the White House. There was no way for me to justify it because I wasn't dumb enough to chalk it up to 40 chess. <laughs> and then from there, the cracks began to deepen and then extended out to 
disappointment and disgust really with the entire constitutionalist militia movement when everyone's reaction was to point and laugh when unmarked anonymous federal task forces polling mostly from immigrations and customs were snatching protesters off the streets in Portland in the back of Hertz rental vans with no warrant. Yeah. Like the black helicopters are here and you're laughing. You've been proven right. And you're cheering on somebody else be that the boot is hitting the correct target and not you. And there is not a lot of reasons that I could think of for why that would be the case. Right. Except that you never meant anything you said. Yeah. And it's unless it w- a lot of it was fundamentally a lie. And in particular, one of the people that Stuart stole from very heavily in creating Oath Keepers or drew a lot of inspiration from after effectively copying a document called uh, Vampire Killer 3000, which is, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, the cop, the cop and military guidebook for defeating the New World Order. Right. Or was it Vampire Slayer 2000? It, it was close enough that whatever you Google, it'll bring up the right thing. Yanking from that and yanking from the work of Mike Vandebeau, the founder of the 3% movement, who made his name being the guy that broke the Fast and Furious scandal. Right. And Mike Vandebeau being a very strange cat who had his own weirdly plausible and very intricate conspiracy theory about the Oklahoma city bombing that I'd never heard anywhere else. He really, really, really believed in the right wing militia movement as a force that could potentially transform into an anti-racist pro-America armed civil disobedience movement affecting positive change and gaining real traction and public support. And he spent his life basically on an unending crusade trying to purge white supremacist influence from the militia movement and steer everyone in that direction. And while he created a degree of legitimacy in his time, he kept proving completely unable to steer the movement away from shit like the Oklahoma City bombing happening or the Malheur refuge. Right. Unable to unable to stop any of that with any of his soft power within the movement. And then when he died, his influence against white supremacist infiltration or outright takeover evaporated immediately and left no lasting immunity. This force of personality was the only thing keeping the camel's nose even a little bit outside of the tent. And once he was gone, that was that. So he was the the guy that was the dam holding back the the tide. Yeah, Mike Vandebeau unrecognized was the little Dutch boy for any public image of the militia movement being separate from white supremacy. Hmm. And that the level to which that was true was only apparent once the cancer got him and Patriot front was left to rampage unchecked and unchallenged through all of the survival blogs. And in 2020, it became impossible for me to ignore that the entire right-wing militia movement and so-called anti-racist constitutionalist militia movement 
were generally turning out to protest to counter protest as if BLM were a protest against America and Donald Trump in particular, including uh, running into dudes that I knew from campfires at our house in Trigo on the other side of the BLM protest in Kalispell, where they were trying to start fights with teenagers while they were walking around in full plate with their rifles. (laughs) It was shit like that that made me realize that there had to be a reason why when the lines were instinctively drawn, the militias all preferred to jump to the defense of men in black uniforms abducting American citizens off the street rather than to the defense of black people. Yeah. That that order of priorities is extremely revealing. Yeah, it really is because you never knew how these people were going to react because for so long, the idea of what they had thought was going to happen was just a fever dream. You know, the government didn't really do that kind of stuff, regardless of what you thought about FEMA camps, regardless of what you thought about black helicopters. It didn't do that kind of stuff to most people. True. But when they were confronted with it, that's the decision they made. Undeniably on live television, Mm -hmm. all the things that they've been warning about in explicit wording for so long. And then it was like, oh, it was just... Every, a whole bunch of Oath Keepers people got purged off my Facebook right. in 2020 because of the cheering and reveling in schadenfreude of in a hilarious show of complete ignorance of history, celebrating that the left-wing agitators were the target of federal law enforcement overreach for once. <laughs> the most ironic statement in the history of American politics Yeah, it's just disgusting after a certain point because this has been their line for years and years and years. And then when the chips are down, this is this is what you think. Okay. Yeah, just either disgusting hypocrisy or an admission that all of your supposed ideals are in fact implicitly only for one group of people. Mm -hmm. And that is just now being revealed in the, when the push comes to shove. Right. So you mentioned that one of the things that came up relatively early that you were exposed to, but never quite bought into was Gamergate. And you mentioned that once it kind of made the transition from ethics in video game journalism, which is somewhat defensible to all women are bad. And that's interesting that you didn't. And what do you think it was that stopped you from kind of being more of a believer in that? Well, at the time I was definitely one of the rootless white males. Right. Identified by Steve Bannon, but I, I didn't fall into the particular arena of identity politics. They were playing. I hadn't adopted gamer as a advanced version of white identity politics and also on another level being somebody who took a lot of refuge in 4chan and weird irc chat rooms and internet escapism to get away from my life in the compound in trigo right and hide and hide from it mentally there were a lot of harder right-wing pipelines 
that were around me all the time that I was inoculated against because I have my own extremely developed contradictory right-wing belief system and was trained to see psychological operations and agent provocateurs in every shadow. And weirdly enough, all of the paranoia prepared me very well for immediately clocking Stormfront when they were trying to do influence operations on 4chan to draw in young blood. Right. And because I really, really believed in the Vandebo vision, none of the like scientific racism and straight white male opp- oppression Olympics got to me in that way because I had a prior flawed and not reflective of reality belief system that held that one in disdain and looked down on it. And that overlapped a lot with Gamergate where I was exposed to the fringes of it a lot and definitely absorbed a lot of the myths about it and had a blind eye towards how much it was about hating women from the very beginning. That was a strong, strong current from step one right and also where the entire old school youtube skeptic sphere got goose stepped into becoming neo-nazis was jumping on that content train i think basically the only gamergate advocate that i can think of who did not become right-wing authoritarian in that was i can't remember his real name total biscuit the huh. dude who introduced me to Blind Guardian. Okay. In one of his videos. And that was that like one video game review channel. Right. Who did interviews on some on some progressive news channels explaining in a way that reminded me very much of a lot of conversations that I've had, where you've got somebody who is a at least they believe a rational member of a political movement that like I'm out here trying to say that my political movement is being unfairly maligned and our enemies are trying to paint us as racist and homophobic and friendly to fascism when we are anything but, and we just have these criticisms against this power structure and engaging in desperate apologetics for a true version of the movement that doesn't actually exist. Like just like the constitutionalist militia movement, uh, Gamergate as a flash in the pan political movement was completely rotten to the core and happened to have a few true believer, generally moral defenders in the public eye who were willing to go to bat for it. And that was it. But it proved an excellent template for like looking at a weather pattern in nature and learning from its dynamics the way that Gamergate emerged was an excellent proving ground for a lot of the core ideas that would be fed into efforts like Cambridge Analytica and the co-opting of the entire right-wing dissident and disaffected young male cultural sphere online to get Donald Trump into office. Yeah, and we've covered Gamergate quite a bit. Like, for instance, you look at the Paul Pelosi incident. You look at David DePaz. Same exact playbook. Because he was sitting in his room in this trailer in Richmond, California, watching nothing but Gamergate videos. He programmed himself. He had a blog. 
that was up for a while and it was just nothing but Gamergate opened my eyes to this whole thing. It was the exact same, you know, concepts that he was just feeding himself day after day. And finally he got to the point where he was going to go get Nancy Pelosi and haul her in front of the world and make her confess her crimes. And when this stuff gets to a certain person, boy, does it ever just take hold and take root. And it's the one thing that they've been looking for like their entire life. And we've seen that enough times now that it's absolutely terrifying. And we've also seen, like you said, the same playbook keep getting run. They figured out a lot of really great tactical stuff for them from Gamergate. And they've figured out how to swarm people. They figured out how to shut down critics and they're going to keep doing it. They're absolutely going to keep doing it until, until it doesn't work anymore, but it may be a while. As long as the internet provides an ecosystem where that can function, it's going to keep being an effective tactic, right. which in the end is unfortunately, I think going to create justification for fencing off the wild west internet and uh, breaking down the internet as we know it now where there are much better ways to prevent the online from being turned into a canon for right-wing ideology but there's going to be a lot of the utility of the free and open internet that is in serious danger yeah of being deleted in the crossfire once the hangover from this period in global fascist movements has set in. Right. Well, you're doing your part. You're out there running for the Montana state legislature. Yes. yes. Would you like to know more? I absolutely would. Because like listening to you for a while, talking with you for a while, I'm like, this guy should be out doing things. This guy's great. He should be absolutely out doing this kind of stuff. We need people like this guy in state legislatures. And you can talk to people. You can talk to people on a few different sides of all of this. So tell me how this is going to work. Tell me, tell me how the campaign's going. Tell me, tell me about it. Well, my initial thought was, you know what? I, I yell at enough people on Twitter mm -hmm. to just for the love of God, contest your local election, no matter what it is. Yeah. Or if you can win, instead of leaving the entire ballot depressingly blank down one side against an unopposed incumbent slate from top to bottom, because I convince people to turn up for the primary elections in Montana in 2024, in 2022, excuse me. And it was effectively pointless because the entire primary slate didn't exist below the congressional level in the on the Democrat side. Right. So if you were not voting in the Republican primary, there was no point in showing up. And that's depressing and demoralizing. And if I'm going to be yelling at people to try to fix that and to be a visible presence in their communities and just to advocate for more ordinary people taking the time to get involved in politics, right. I have to walk the walk in order to back that up or I'm just another guy yelling on Twitter. And that's effectively where it started was my plan was just to print up some pamphlets and just be going door to door, talking to people about Montana issues as an open progressive Democrat in one of the most conservative parts of rural Montana. 
and set that example. And you, you folks out there listening, uh, I work full time. I go to school part time. I'm a, a volunteer fire department. I also, to be per, to be perfectly honest, struggle a lot with depression and anxiety, and I'm doing the thing. So depending on where you live, you might have as much as 20 days left to decide to do the thing right? and file to run for anything. The run for something website will help you. It's not actually as hard as you think it's going to be. Updating your voter registration if you've moved is going to be the longest and most complicated part of the process for most of you. Do the thing. Yeah, but about doing the thing. Uh, my main utility is like as far as usefulness and why I am decided to run for myself instead of volunteering as staff for another campaign and putting my time into that or into doing charity organizing or something else is because I know that I have to use what I have and I have an interesting story. Yeah. And I have, through that, a vector to connect with a bunch of people in this area in particular, which used to be the Oath Keepers stronghold in Montana, and get past thought terminating cliches and start talking to people as a person with established common ground and get an opening to talk to people where other people would just be talking to a wall. And since I have that, I have to use the tool that I got to affect the most change that I can. Right. And you're definitely good at this. This is like just talking to you for an hour or so. You get the idea of like, this guy should be doing what he's doing right now. Oh, I hope so. This is, it's actually been extraordinarily surprising because we were, we were so isolated my whole childhood. I didn't learn how to talk to people outside of my family. Really? until I was a full grown adult going through firefighter Academy. It was a terribly awkward experience just because of that. I knew so little about how to communicate with people and had such atrophied social awareness that it was hard to communicate effectively with my instructors about training exercises. Right. And so finding that people keep saying that I have charisma or can talk or have presence is I'm completely immune to external validation. So that, that mean that means nothing, but it's definitely surprising because I've assumed always that that's my greatest weakness is speaking to other humans. But I guess that was yeah, no. <laughs> only environmental. There must we'll be see. something else. Cause that ain't it. You know, no, you, you should keep doing what you're doing. Cause you're, you know, you're really good at this in terms of talking to people. Speaking of talking to people, say you run into yourself at, you know, 17 or 18 and you're looking for a way out. You're, you're kind of on the fence on this whole thing of like, is this completely bullshit or not? And you're going to talk to that person who might be willing to walk away from it or willing to listen to somebody telling them that there's reasons and it's okay to get out of this thing. What would you say? No, there's a couple of wedges that can be driven in there because the entire ultra conspiracy, Alex Jones, UFO, Jesus mythology, bullshit, the, the whole structure, whatever flavor you've got, it holds itself together with its own weight, like a Roman bridge where the contradictions jam up against each other and right. hold themselves in place by their friction. You remove one block 
and the rest of the structure starts to crumble. Something I've noticed a lot in the onlines recently is an enormous amount of skepticism from people on the right wing at the number of right wing influencers who are still being accepted and lauded by the community when it comes out that they're domestic abusers. Yeah. There's an enormous amount of disdain, like a surprising amount for me of people going, why should I be taking these, this new wave of the right wing seriously when this is what you consider acceptable when this you can, you're having this guy on your Twitter space. Yeah. And that is one serious point where a fracture can be widened. Yeah. And I think a very important thing is to, when you're talking to somebody who is deeply propagandized, is everybody knows about that effect where if you present somebody evidence that is contrary to their beliefs, they double down. And that happens in my case, and this is my very particular viewpoint as a very likely autistic teenager arguing with people on Reddit to evangelize the good word of Bo Gritz and Ayn Rand and whoever the hell else and just wearing down everybody with my sheer persistence to posting. Um, I was not actually absorbing any of it. I was looking, I already knew that I had the objectively correct ideology and I was going into every argument or debate as an arena for combat to prove my ideas correct for anyone who might be in the neutral audience. I was not available to be persuaded. Right. When I was available to be persuaded was when I developed a common reality with people on the left, especially in the aftermath of January 6th, would realizing that they'd been right about Trump the entire time. And then taking a step back, especially dealing with my parents' divorce and the fight to get the restraining order and the entirety of the court system, realizing that the crazy feminists that all the you people on my YouTube have been making fun of had also been right the entire time where there is a common reality established where you agree on a thing and it's not smashing ideas against each other, like action figures, but establishing this is a thing that we both agree on is objective reality. This is happening. Yep. And then the way I approach it is, and then I believe in this because of this, this is the logical chain of reasoning that led to me believing in this thing that is different from yours without presenting my viewpoint and belief as a thing that I'm showcasing and explaining and not as an attack. Right. Because if it feels like an attack, that's when you get the double down is you is laying out why I believe what I believe when there is a serious difference in ideas of basic reality or what new story is true is a lot more effective because it is leaving all of these alternate ideas on the table for the person I'm talking to, to pick up without feeling like they're being hit on the head with them. And that happened with me accidentally because of my own process of gradually fracturing belief system. But it is definitely something I think to keep in mind. And the most important thing fundamentally is that extremist groups, all authoritarian structures are the same. They just scale like a dictatorship in my opinion is not so very different from 
a family with an abusive parent that controls everything. So I think the most important thing is to be there for people who are clearly victims of a bad system, even if they remain entrenched in their ideology. Like the people who kept talking to me on Reddit, even when I was ranting about Pizzagate in their DMs nonstop after I'd opened up a little bit about trying to get myself and my siblings out of an abusive home life. They just let that wash over them and continue to be there engaged for when I was asking for advice about exit strategy planning. Right. That was important. That's the, that was the most important thing. And knowing that those people didn't check out on you, knowing that those yes. people were still going to be there, even if they'd seen you at, you know, some of your worst, they were still like, yeah, this kid's worth saving. So how can people support you in the work that you're doing? Well, I have now for the, for the campaign, I have an act blue link up and other Adams for HD one. It's going to be on the Twitters and my, my website redirects the link tree that has all my stuff on it. Okay. And for me personally and funding my consumption of takeout and stalking Etsy for sales on metal band patches, <laughs> or more realistically uh, paying down debt so that I can campaign right. more than I work in the coming <laughs> in the coming year that's going to that's going to be the substack where I make my level best effort to alternate posting summaries of my take on Montana politics and especially the readout right wing influence attempt to shake up Montana politics and then with childhood stories from militia days or my particular point of view on a topic that overlaps a lot with the militia movement. You ever think about writing a book? I've been asked that a lot. I think the way that it's eventually going to go is I'm going to, once I've assembled enough disconnected childhood stories, sit down with an editor and turn it into a coherent narrative and probably also with some kind of mental health professional to figure out the overarching processes and do like a a retrospective in what was going on through all of this. That'll be a long time coming. I probably, before I write a book about my life, I'll finish up the fragmented and terrible first draft of an epic fantasy novel that I have sitting in the open office. (laughs) And that'll, that'll be after I knock out a few other priorities. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dakota, thank you so much for taking the time to talk tonight. This has been very enlightening. You've got a lot of great ideas and you really need to keep doing what you're doing because the world absolutely needs you to be doing what you're doing right now. Well, thank you for, so thank, thank you. you for bringing me on the talk. And I'm immune to external validation as ever, but I recognize that those are nice words. So thanks. <laughs> we do our best. And hey, thank you very much. And you have a great rest of your night. Okay. You too. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at GrizzaBJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWPod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.